Yes, you're listening to Law and Gospel on this Wednesday, October the 27th, in the year of our Lord, 2017. I'm Pastor Tom Baker, and we've been talking for 24-plus years here on KFUO about the distinction between law and gospel. Now, there are some Bible verses, and we're going to be really looking at one this Reformation Sunday that make it very clear that the distinction between law and gospel is one in which nobody is saved by obedience to the law. Instead, salvation comes through the gospel. And a lot of times that is difficult to understand. So we like to have some Bible verses that really touch on the difference between what is the law, what is the gospel. And the Bible talks about that those who are under the law are different than those who are under the gospel. Under the law simply means that you have an attitude within you, that's your old Adam, that your works make a difference in your salvation. Yesterday I was on the telephone with an individual who was complaining about a person in the congregation who keeps bragging about all the things that he does in the church. And he definitely was giving the impression that he didn't have to really give that much money to the church because he was doing so many good things for the church. Well, that's a perfect example of living under the law. There's somebody who simply does not understand Christianity. We've been talking recently about the distinction between biblical theology and everyday theology. Everyday theology is the theology that a lot of people have in their hearts because they're thinking commonsensically about Christianity. And a lot of times when you think commonsensically, you're not understanding Christianity. Christianity is against human reason. So while human reason may be very good in temporal matters, secular matters, when it comes to the message of the Bible, human reason falls short. There are even hymns that talk about that reason cannot fathom God has to tell us. In fact, I can't find an example in the Bible where somebody comes to understand Christianity properly that doesn't deal with the Holy Spirit giving them faith first. So first, faith comes. Now, you can tell whether somebody is under biblical theology or under well, everyday theology, by sometimes the questions they ask. So we're going to give you a, a Bible passage and take a look at it from the point of view of how you can explain to others what living under the law means. The passage is from Mark 10, beginning with verse 17. Jesus is setting out on a journey, and a man runs up, runs up and knelts before him and asks him, Good teacher, 
what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, that's a pretty common question. People want to know, how do we get to heaven? When driving Uber, we'd have people in the back seat. They get to know that I'm a pastor. Well, what religion are you? Well, Lutheran. Well, what's the difference? I'm, they'll say, Roman Catholic or something like that. And then we explain to them uh, the difference between Lutheranism and whatever religion they are. If they're a Christian religion, like being a Baptist, Roman Catholic, Presbyterian, etc., we make it clear that what we are saying doesn't mean that they're not going to be saved, but they have some errors in their everyday theology. So, in Mark 10, verse 17, do you notice the error that this rich man has when he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, you can show that that verse is a contradiction. The question contradicts what must I do and also inherit. What do you do to inherit anything? You don't do anything. It's a gift. You may inherit something because you're in a relationship with a person in the sense that you may be the son or the daughter or the granddaughter or the grandson or somehow in your birth, you get into a situation where when someone dies, they leave you some items. It could be cash, could be property, whatever. That's an inheritance. And you didn't earn it. You didn't merit it. You get it as a gift. So when he says to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus begins to question him because Jesus is well aware that the question itself shows this man is living under the law. What does that mean? It means he thinks that he can get to heaven by what he does. And he also makes a mistake in how he refers to Jesus. Good teacher. Jesus says to him in the very next verse, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So Jesus is starting to make the point that this man, therefore, also is not good. And teacher, Jesus could not be a good teacher if he were not God. So, after saying that, he gives the man an answer to his question, what he has to do to inherit eternal life. You know the commandments, and he indicates a few of them about murder, adultery, stealing, bearing false witness, defrauding, honor your father and mother. And so he says those commandments. Now, what Jesus is saying here, if you want to do something to get to heaven, you have to obey the commandments perfectly. Now, the rich man says to Jesus, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Well, that's a good joke because nobody has kept a commandment from his youth. The fact of the matter is 
commandments are broken, not only when we do something wrong, but when we say something wrong, when we think something wrong. This all comes from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, you've heard it said of old, thou shalt not murder. I'm telling you, you got a bad thought against your friend? You say a bad word against them? That's breaking the commandment. Thou shalt not murder because you're hurting and harming your neighbor. And therefore you deserve eternal hell. See, that's the message of the Bible. People who think that they can obey the commandments. I've, I've never really quite figured out how individuals can't understand God's use of the law. He has three uses of the law, and they're quite parallel to uses that parents have over children. The first use that God has is for the government to discipline those who break the law. So we have tickets, we have jail time. It all depends the level of the breaking of the law. And so that is something parents do. When you break their rules, there is discipline. For example, I love playing baseball. And when I was at school, I would wait until the game was over sometimes before I went home. And therefore, I could be late for supper. My mother had taken time to make the supper, and here I come in a half hour late. And so I was disciplined. In other words, I wasn't able to watch television that night, had to go to bed early, and so forth. Now, that's the first use of the law, to correct those who are doing wrong. But how do you know you're doing wrong? That's the second use of the law. It accuses us of doing wrong. And parents make that very clear. I don't ever remember being disciplined for doing something wrong that I didn't know was wrong. Because my parents had told me, you know, don't do that, don't do this, be home at such and such a time, etc. So the fact of the matter is, the second use of the law is to accuse sinners that, no, you aren't good. You aren't God. You aren't able to save yourself by your works. And the way you do that is you share the commandments of God with those who think they're good enough to be inheriting heaven. And normally, when you point out the law, People recognize, well, yeah, I may have done that wrong, but it didn't really matter that much. It was just a thought. No, it doesn't matter if it's a thought, if it's a word, if it's a deed. All receive the same consequence of spiritual damnation. Now, there's no doubt that there is no good news for receiving the consequences of your temporal sins. You go over the speed limit, you get stopped by a policeman. But the policeman is a member of your congregation. It doesn't matter if you look at him and say, you know, I repent that I went over the speed limit. He's not going to be able to forgive you in the sense of not giving you a ticket. You still deserve the ticket. So there is 
no salvation word for getting rid of the consequences of your temporal sins. That, by the way, is what purgatory is all about in the Roman Catholic Church. They think that's how you pay the consequences of your temporal sins. And since hardly anybody ends up getting them paid for while they're on earth, therefore, after they die, they have to spend time in purgatory, paying for the consequences of their temporal sins. At any rate, anybody who would say like this rich man does, all these I have kept from my youth, all you need to do is point out one area of his life where he has not been keeping them. And that's how the law makes a big use of the second use, accusing us of breaking God's law. Now, God's third use is simply information as to what his will is. And that is also what parents do. They indicate to the children, well, if we want to have a happy home, then you need to be home at such and such a time. You need to go to bed at such and such a time. You need to do your homework. Uh, you need, and, and see, these are all information to you as to what you're to be doing in that home. So just as a parent has a first, a second, and a third use of the law, so also does God. Now, did you note that there's no use of the law a parent has to make you his or her child. Yeah. A parent never would say, well, if you do these things, wash the dishes, take out the garbage, wash the car, guess what? You will be my child. No. You became the child of that family through something you did not do. You either were begotten or you were adopted. Those are the only two ways to become children of those people who now become your parents. And it's not by what you have done. Similarly, there's nothing you do to become a child of God. I became a child of God when I was baptized just a few days after I was born. I, I was unaware I can't remember. I don't recall my attitude at that time. But I do believe the Bible that says when I was baptized, not only were my sins forgiven, but I received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And with the Holy Spirit comes faith. Now, Jesus hears the young man, the rich man say, I've observed every commandment since I was a youth. And he looks at him and loves him. You see, this is a proper attitude of Christians towards those who are neglecting the word of God, who are sinning against the word of God. We still love them, which means we still want them to be saved. And so you give them an example, and in this case, it's not an example of what they need to know as to how they're saved, but Jesus gives them an example, that rich man, of 
why he is not going to be saved. He says, you lack one thing, and that can be read like, well, about a million other things, here's one you lack. Sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Now, what Jesus has done, knowing this man, hearing the question, knowing that his everyday theology is one through which he thinks he can be saved by what he does, Jesus, therefore, takes one of the commandments that he's breaking and tells him, well, just correct that. But Jesus knows he can't correct that. And that's shown clearly in verse 22 of Mark 10. Disheartened by the saying of Jesus, the rich man went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, there are some who believe that, wow, if you have great possessions, what a temptation that is to not have to listen to Jesus Christ. You don't have to call on him for needing anything. You just use your money. But I remember famous individuals who were very, very rich, and one of their children died, maybe in a plane accident, car accident, from sickness. And it sounds like they would give all of their money if they could have that child back. They're that sad. But you see, that's a way of waking them up to the fact that what they trust in, namely their possessions, is not something that will hold water. Now, Jesus then says to his disciples in verse 23, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Now, actually a better translation is how impossible it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And in fact, the disciples are amazed at his words. Why? Because as part of Judaism, which they have been brought up, they have been taught that those who are rich are really blessed by God because of what they are doing. Therefore, when Jesus says, you know, it's about impossible for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, the disciples are just astonished at his words. But in verse 24, Jesus says something even more astonishing. Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Notice that he doesn't say how difficult it is for a rich man. It's just difficult. It's impossible to enter the kingdom of God. Well, this really doesn't make sense to the disciples because they've been hearing Jesus talk about coming into the kingdom of God in order to be saved. And then he gives a metaphor. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, some people think that Jesus is referring to some gate in Jerusalem that later was called the eye of the needle through which a small camel could go. But 
The Greek doesn't permit that. It's really the eye of a sewing needle. And you can't let a camel go through the eye of a sewing needle. That's how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God for a rich person. Well, the disciples are exceedingly astonished because this goes against everything that they thought they believed. That when you take a look at an individual and he's rich, he's got a good family, he has many possessions, these are blessings from God to someone whom he thinks merits these gifts. But the Bible never talks about anybody meriting a blessing. You receive a blessing. It is always a gift. It is not merited. It is inherited. So the rich man has the right word, inherited. He just has the wrong verb. He thinks you have to do something. No. Instead, to inherit something, you have to, in the eyes of the person giving the inheritance, you have to be an individual that receives a gift. We have no reason to know why God gives that gift. In fact, the disciples are so astonished by what Jesus has said that even rich people, it's impossible for them to enter the kingdom of God. They ask, then who can be saved? See, that's really what the rich man should have asked. Jesus, how can I be saved? But he had already in his question given the answer. What do I have to do in order to be saved, to inherit eternal life? And he doesn't realize that that is a contradiction even within his statement, even within his question. So the disciples, if it's impossible for anyone to enter the kingdom of God, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Verse 27 is really important of Mark 10. Why, on the one hand, can Jesus say, it's impossible for anyone to enter the kingdom of God, but then say, yes, with man it's impossible, but not with God. What's he talking about? I'll, I'll tell you how some people interpret this verse. With man all by himself, it is impossible to do anything to merit his way into the kingdom of God. But with the help of God, with the help of the Holy Spirit, he is then able to do good works, and God rewards those good works with salvation. So in a sense, he's not doing the good works, but the Holy Spirit is working in him to do the good works. That unfortunately is how some people interpret this verse. And it must be the way that every other religion in the world interprets this verse. Why? Because every other religion in the world teaches what you do makes a difference 
whether you go to heaven or hell. In contrast to Christianity, it says what you believe makes a difference. So how can Jesus say it's impossible for anybody to enter the kingdom of God, but then say you can still, with God, come into heaven? He's answering the man's question. What can I do to inherit the kingdom of God? And Jesus is saying, you want to do something? Guess what? It is impossible for you to do anything to enter the kingdom of God. But not with God. He can give you entrance into the kingdom of God, not because of what you have done, but because of what his son has done in dying on the cross, paying for your sins, and making home your heaven. That's the good news of Mark chapter 10, beginning with verse 17. And it's a great passage to show people the difference between living under the law and living under the gospel. Now we mentioned that yes, Roman Catholics are saved, but there are some differences. And on tomorrow's Law and Gospel, we're going to listen and hear about what a Roman Catholic says about Luther and Lutheranism. I'm Tom Baker. Join us tomorrow. God bless you. Listen to Law and Gospel each weekday morning at 9.30 on KFUO. For a tax-deductible gift to Law and Gospel, please make your check payable to Concordia Mission Society and mail it to Tom Baker, P.O. Box 28910, St. Louis, Missouri, 63132. To give online, visit lawandgospel101.com or call toll-free 1-877-267-1962.